Romans chapter 5, verse 6 to 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though, perhaps, for a good person, one dare, would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we have reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Who is your best friend? What would you do for your best friend? Who is your worst enemy? What would you do for your worst enemy? Hold those thoughts. Now let's look at what God has done for us. Let's look at Romans chapter 5, verses 2 and 5. Through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The love of God is powerful. As Pastor Rob said last weekend, much more powerful and enduring than the strongest cup of coffee. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We can know God's love because we experience it internally. But one might argue that this is just very subjective. Is there any objective basis for our hope? Can we know for sure that God loves us? Even when our feelings or the drama of our life circumstances might be leading us to question that love. Paul begins to answer this question in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. The powerful presence of the Holy Spirit, this overwhelming experience of God's love, came into the hearts of the weak, the ungodly, sinners, and enemies of God. This is how people are described in verses 6 through 11. This is who we were before we were made right with God through faith in Jesus. Now, this is hard for us to hear because we tend to see ourselves as basically good. We're not out there robbing banks and killing our neighbors. What's the Bible saying? When it says we were weak, it means we were helpless, unable to live up to God's character. When it says we were ungodly, it means we were not even thinking about God. We were just living for ourselves. When it says we were sinners, it means that we had completely missed the target God had for us. When it says we were enemies of God, it means we were actually hostile toward God. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. This is who we were. We were naturally disobedient to God's ways. The language here is of absolute certainty. We were without a hope in the world. It's hard to look at our own sinfulness. But it is necessary if we're going to value what God has done in Jesus. The the grace of God becomes more and more beautiful as we become aware of our own sinfulness. Paul describes our sinfulness in Romans 1. 
We humans exchange our creator for idols. An idol is anything or anyone who takes the place of God in our hearts. As we worship idols, we become futile in our thinking and we sin against others. When we humans remove God from the scene, there's increased sexual immorality and ever-increasing relational breakdown. Love grows cold, as the Bible says. Romans chapter 1, verse 29 They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. What a list. I will highlight just a few. Gossips, people who poison relationships, slanderers, stabbers in the back. Haughty, the self-sufficient person who sets himself above others. Disobedient to parents. Do we need to obey our parents? Aren't they in our lives to serve us? Faithless, people who break their relational commitments. Heartless, the lack of love as in a mother or a father who abandons their family. These sins destroy human relationships. In the following verses, Paul argues that people begin to label sin as good or natural and do great damage to those around them because eventually the sins listed in Romans chapter 1, they become normal and people no longer see sin to be sin. The worst sin is the rejection of our Creator and if there could be a worse sin, it would be to actively encourage others to get rid of their Creator. In the West, since the 19th century, we've come to believe that we're progressing from primitive life forms to more advanced ones. We speak of development progress, and fulfillment in all areas of life. Now, the desire to grow and mature, it's God-given. But in the West, we believe we can progress without Him. In fact, we believe that without God, we will progress even more as we follow the changing moral and social norms of our postmodern culture. Each new generation is morally superior to the previous one and able to stand in judgment on previous generations. But the truth is, we are not progressing morally. We're having a really hard time doing relationships. As we distance ourselves from our Creator, we're experiencing regression, not progression. We find ourselves more confused, more anxious, and broken. This is all very sobering. But, and here's the good news, at just the right time, at exactly the right time in God's salvation plan for the world, while we were still in our sins and completely incapable of saving ourselves, Christ died for us. Here's the first point. In the past, while we were sinners, Christ died for us, the ungodly. The verb to die there, it occurs four times in verses 6 through 8. And four times it is for or on behalf of. Paul is obviously emphasizing something. Jesus died as our substitute. He took the punishment for our sin that we deserved. Jesus did not die for us because he detected in us an inclination toward him, toward good, or a desire on our part to end our hostility toward him. Jesus acted on our behalf out of love. Before we made any move toward him, Jesus died for us before we ever had a thought about him. This is nothing but the absolute revelation of God's grace. On one occasion, a religious leader invited Jesus to his home for a meal. A woman of the city, read prostitute, entered the home with an alabaster flask of ointment. 
As she wept, her tears wet Jesus' feet, and she wiped them with her hair. Then she anointed his feet with ointment. The religious leader was incensed. Jesus should have known the woman was a sinner. Jesus responded to his criticism with a parable. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 days of wages and the other 50. Neither could pay, so he canceled their debts. And Jesus asked, which of them would love the moneylender more? The religious leader responded, well, the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus answered, exactly. The religious leader had not welcomed Jesus properly by anointing his head and washing his feet as was the custom. But the woman had not stopped washing his feet and anointing them. And Jesus said, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. We have all sinned much and been forgiven much. I went back to Romans chapter 1 and counted the sins listed. Around 28 sins are listed. Of the 28, I have committed 25. And I know you have too. And that list is not exhaustive. How could we ever say, we're good? No, the good news is that Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 5.32. Sometimes I say to myself, being a Christian, wow, despite my sin, despite my past record, despite all my flaws, I've been forgiven, saved. That's unbelievable. And it's absolutely true. And what is true for me is true for you. Pastor theologian Tim Keller writes this, a Christian is more flawed and sinful than you'd ever dare believe, and yet more loved and accepted than you'd ever dare hope at the same moment. Take a moment to remember your life. If you are a Christian, remember God's grace toward you. He drew you to himself and made you alive. You were lost and he found you. He redeemed you. Your life from beginning to end is an act of his grace. So be strengthened by his grace today. His grace toward you is abundant. Remember, thank him. If you're not a Christian, think about how wonderful it would be to be forgiven, to be set free from all guilt and all shame, to receive the peace of God in your heart and know that you are completely loved by him. Returning to Romans 5, Paul contrasts God's love with our human love. Romans 5, 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. On rare occasions, a person might sacrifice one's life for a morally upright person, or one might possibly sacrifice one's life for a good person, a person who has done much good for others. One might die for someone near and dear, a family member, a friend, or one's own people. We see this in times of war. Many are ready to die for their families, for their children, for their own people. But God's love belongs in an entirely different category. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is absolutely unique, distinctive, unexpected, and unheard of. Why? Well, love is measured by the cost to the giver and the worthiness of the one loved. The more the sacrifice costs the one who loves, and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love is seen to be. Measured by these standards, God's love is absolutely unique. Jesus gave 
everything to those who deserve nothing from him except judgment. Jesus did not die for good people, but for sinners. That is, ungodly people living in willful rebellion against him. He died for people who spurned and rejected him. Think of the most evil world leader in ancient history. Perhaps Pharaoh of Egypt or Manasseh during the time of the Israelite kings or or Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Think of the most evil world leader in modern history. Perhaps Adolf Hitler, former leader of Nazi Germany or Joseph Stalin, former leader of the Soviet Union or Idi Amin, former leader of Uganda. The list goes on and on. Think of the most evil person you know. Jesus died for that person. Would you die for that person? When Jesus died for us, God's love was demonstrated. A better word is proven. We live with confident hope because God's unconditional, unquenchable love has already been proven. God has both proved his love for us in the death of his son and poured his love into our hearts by the gift of his spirit. This is what Paul is arguing. This is his thesis. Our internal, subjective experience of God's love does not float free from an anchor in history. No, it is grounded in the objective work of Christ on the cross. This is a historical fact. And this definitive work in history on our behalf was motivated by the love of God. And this love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. What a mind-blowing combination. Now, someone might still say, it's great to know I've been made right with God that Jesus died for me, and that I'm loved by God. But how do I know I'm going to make it to the end? As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. How do we know that in the end we will pass the test? The Jews of Paul's day believed that justification before God was something that would take place at the end of one's life. God would analyze a person's faithfulness to the law at the end and determine whether the person was to be condemned or justified. Today, this is the dilemma of adherence of every world religion. In every world religion, people are trying to establish merit in order to get into heaven or reincarnate to a better life. And you are never quite sure whether or not you've done enough, whether you will make it. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 9 argues from the greater to the lesser. What do I mean? We followers of Jesus have been justified, declared to be in the right before God by virtue of Jesus' blood shed for us. Our justification was obtained at the cost of Christ's blood. Here's the second point in the past. We have been justified, declared right with God. This sums up the first four chapters of Romans. If the greatest obstacle to our relationship with God, our guilt before God, our sin, has been removed then we can be sure that we will be saved on the day of judgment from God's wrath. There is no condemnation for those who are are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Allow me to say it in a different way. If God has already done the harder thing, taken rebellious sinners like us and made us right with himself, we can be confident that he will accomplish the easier thing, vindicate us on the last day. 
those whom he has already justified. God has already removed what separated us from God. The God who brought us into faith will keep us going in our faith. The God who opened heaven for us will make sure we get there. Followers of Jesus can live with assurance of complete salvation now, today. Now listen to Romans 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Now, verse 10 is a restatement of verse 9, but the the two verses are not completely parallel. Verse 9 speaks of justification. Verse 10 addresses reconciliation. Justification, well, it comes from the legal realm, the courtroom. We're declared innocent of sins committed. Reconciliation comes from the realm of personal relationships. It means to exchange enmity or hostility for friendship. We enter into a new, restored, more intimate relationship with someone when we are reconciled. So in the past, we have been reconciled. We became God's friends. Verse 10, like verse 9, argues from the greater to the lesser. If God loved us while we were still his enemies... Won't he be able to see us through to the final goal of our salvation now that we're his friends? In other words, if God was able to save us when we were hostile to him, why would he fail us now that we're his friends? As we saw earlier, we were actively opposed to God, exchanging the one and only true God for idols, living for ourselves and harming others. But God took the initiative. We did not take the initiative. God sent Jesus on our behalf. Through Jesus' death, the enmity created by sin has been completely overcome. We're now at peace with God. Now that we are friends of God, our complete salvation is secured by Jesus' life. That is his resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection are inseparable. Being united with Jesus, we share in his life Now we're alive spiritually and we will experience the power of his resurrection on the last day. When we die, we will simply go to see our friend. So that's in the future. We will be saved by Jesus' life. Now, the language around salvation here may confuse some of us. Have we been saved? Are we being saved? Or will we be saved? The answer is yes, yes, and yes. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can say, I have been saved. That is, I have been justified before God. I have been freed from the penalty of sin. I do not need to work for my salvation, try to measure up, or struggle to gain God's acceptance. I do not need to live in guilt and fear. I have been reconciled with God. I am God's friend. So say it with me. I have been saved. Then, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can also say, I am being saved. I'm being sanctified by the Spirit. I'm being transformed into the likeness of Jesus day by day. I have been freed from the power of sin. The God-given desire within me to grow and mature is being guided by the Holy Spirit. So say it with me. I am being saved. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you can also say, I will be saved. I will be glorified. I will be completely transformed into the likeness of Jesus at his second coming. I will be freed from the presence of sin. I have assurance of complete salvation. So say it with me. I will be saved. At the starting point of our walk with Jesus, we're justified. We're made right with God. 
This is where we start. We do not work for this. Our justification, it opens the door to being friends with God. And this is our gift by faith. As friends of God, we are being transformed each day as we submit to the Father, abide in Jesus, and allow the Holy Spirit to transform our thoughts, our decisions, and emotions. Each day, we long to be more like Jesus. We long to be set free from all sinful tendencies. And the good news is this. At Christ's return, we will be rid of all sin, completely transformed. Hallelujah. I can't wait for that day. We can live with this insurance. God's love will carry us safely to the full end of our salvation so we can live with confident hope. Listen to Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What happens when we don't believe in our complete salvation? Well, then we try to measure up. We wonder about judgment day. We live in guilt and fear. We actually believe that Jesus did not do enough on the cross. We believe the sin we committed is too big for Jesus to cover. We somehow need to pay for it. We need to add something to God's grace. It means we're functionally accepting the teaching of other religions that teach us to earn our salvation. But when we understand the truth of the gospel we find ourselves grounded in God's love, which has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We experience it. And it's not just an internal experience. Our confident hope is based on God's love demonstrated in history. God proved his love for us when Jesus died on our behalf. Based on this grounded, confident hope, we're filled with joy. The greatness of our hope and the depth of God's love cause us to rejoice, exult in God's work on our behalf through Jesus. This is right and good. But there's even more. Romans 5, verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Verse 11 builds on verses 1 through 10. It is the capstone. We followers of Jesus go beyond being thankful to avoid God's wrath. We go beyond rejoicing in our justification before God. We go beyond rejoicing in our reconciliation with God. We go beyond exulting in what we have received from God. We actually rejoice in God himself. This is what we do in the present. We rejoice in God because we're his friends. We're elated to be his friends. We're elated to know him, to be with him. Joy is the great marker of the justified person. It's unique to Christianity because it it doesn't depend on performance or feelings or circumstances. It's deep, lasting joy. When we give our hearts to anyone or anything other than God and seek our joy there, we're always disappointed. Sooner or later, we realize that we're not that joyful. Our experience of joy is fleeting, insecure, illusory. And what do we do then? Either we will look to something else and be disappointed again, or we will just give up on finding joy and become detached so we don't even feel anything. Those are our options without Jesus. We chase after another person, another thing to fill our inner vacuum, somehow give us some joy, or we detach ourselves from everyone and everything, expecting 
nothing. But the gospel of Jesus gives us true joy. It gives us God himself. And how do we nurture that true joy? Well, contemplating the big story God is writing in history. He has his strong hand on the whole human story. And we enjoy the stories God is writing in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We see evidence of God's presence in their lives. And as his people, we meditate on what we've already received in Jesus, who we now are in Jesus, and where we will be with Jesus in the future. We have been justified. We are being sanctified. And we will be glorified. This is certain. It fills us with joy. And we do not only meditate on these truths. We actually enjoy being God's friend. True joy is found in being with God, being loved by him and loving him. We rejoice in God himself. He is much more than enough. Here's a quotation for your reflection and a question to ponder. God bless you.